all doctors, irrespective of the setting in which they work, will care for patients who die. Over half of NHS complaints concern care of the dying, and evidence suggests that the quality of communication around this process is poorer in hospitals than in other settings. The BMJ has previously published articles on how to provide good palliative care, both in hospital settings and community settings, but this week we've published an Essentials Education article titled Supporting Relatives and Carers at the End of a Patient's Life, that focuses specifically on how doctors can also play a role in supporting relatives and carers of patients at this difficult time. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined today for this podcast by two of the authors of this article. Jane Harris is a psychotherapist and filmmaker. Following their own experience of losing their son, son Joshua in 2011, Jane and her husband James have recently formed the Good Grief Project, which is a registered charity seeking to support those facing bereavement. Thank you for joining us today, Jane. Thanks for asking me. We're also joined by another of the authors, Dr. Catherine Sleeman, an NIHR clinician scientist and consultant in palliative medicine at King's College London. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So as I've mentioned in this introduction, there seem to be issues with the quality of communication around the care of dying in hospitals. Catherine, maybe you could start us off with talking a little bit about what this evidence shows and perhaps what there is that we think healthcare teams can improve on. Sure. So we do have quite good evidence from um, bereaved carers surveys. There's a survey called the Voices Survey, which runs annually in this country and asks people who've had a bereavement to rate aspects of the quality of care of the person who died. And those surveys consistently show that significantly more relatives of people who are treated in hospital than any other settings report poor communication with healthcare professionals. Um, In the last survey, about one in five people disagreed that they were able to discuss the patient's condition with staff. Similarly, about one in five people who answered that survey disagreed that they were kept informed of the patient's condition. And that's significantly worse than in other settings like for people who died at home or in care homes or in hospices. So we know that there is an issue with communication at, towards the end of life for people who die in hospitals. I think in terms of what's going wrong, um, that's a more tricky question to answer. We know that most people, on the whole, people who die in hospitals have more complex illness than those who might be dying in other settings. So it may be that they have more complex needs and communication is therefore more complex too. Um, But I think that there are also issues around continuity of healthcare professionals and the time that professionals might have in order to have some of these quite tricky conversations. I also think that there's a tendency, having been a junior doctor myself, I think that there is a tendency for junior doctors to sometimes put these conversations towards the bottom of the to-do list. It's much, if you've got 20 things to do, it's much easier to tick off doing some blood tests and chasing up an x-ray than it is finding the time and the the space, the emotional space to sit down with a patient's relative and approach some of these difficult conversations. Another thing also, having been a junior doctor, I know from experience is that we may avoid conversations because we don't have all the answers. The sort of questions relatives might ask are inherently tricky 
and there may not be a, a right answer. And that's quite difficult. It's quite difficult to, I think, sometimes for healthcare professionals to bear that uncertainty, to acknowledge it and and cope with it. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned junior doctors, but actually it's not, it won't just be junior doctors who... Um, will be having these conversations or will need to be communicating with relatives. It's sort of the wider healthcare team as well. Yeah, that that is definitely true. But I do think junior doctors deserve a sort of special focus because they're often plunged in right at the deep end and dying doesn't occur nine to five when the rest of the team is around. It's often out of hours when a junior doctor is perhaps asked to have a conversation with a patient or their relative when something perhaps, you know, perhaps a patient has taken a turn for worse unexpectedly. And it's often the junior doctor who is on the ward, who is the first port of call for the nurses to say, oh, we think you need to have this conversation. And that can be incredibly difficult. Jane, so to start the article, you use a quite poignant Cicely Saunders quote, which says, how people die remains in the memory of those who live on. Um, I suppose this gives us a sense why this is important. Jane, for you, why is this important that healthcare teams get this right? Um, What does it mean both for the patient and for those close to them? It's it's a wonderfully important um, quote that, isn't it? Because I know that in my experience of death, um, the memories do live on after the person has died and it's very important to address that because you're left with some really strong feelings and certainly with my mother um, who died in hospital very suddenly um, I felt really upset really confused and very much in the dark um, and that had been my first experience of death in a medical setting um, a few years previously, I'd experienced the death of my son, but he was traveling and I hadn't been there when he died. And so for me to be with someone who was dying, it was even more important that I understood and that I kind of could get close to her and I, I didn't know what to do. So I'm left with some bad memories and that's why that quote is very relevant. Mm. In a way, though, I think Cicely's quote doesn't quite go far enough because a bad death not only stays in people's memory, but it affects that person's day-to-day living potentially for years. There's quite good evidence that people who are well supported in death and bereavement by specialist palliative care teams, they have better outcomes, both short and long-term. They're more able to move on with their own lives. So good end-of-life care isn't just the morally right thing to do for for the patient. It's actually essential for the good of society. And I suppose you're starting to touch on there this um, the matter of kind of how people experience grief and the fact that there is a risk of complicated grief after someone has suffered um, uh, after someone has become bereaved. Um, and you you do in the in the article describe some of these um, uh, some of these risk factors that can put people at risk of developing complicated grief. What what Perhaps what are some of the factors that healthcare teams might have some influence over and and might be able to reduce that risk? So I think um, the... 
So in, in our article, we do have a box on risk factors associated with complicated grief. And, and they're a combination of factors, um, including sort of background factors, for example, having a very close relationship with the um, deceased, treatment-related factors, for example, um, if the deceased received very aggressive medical interventions like ICU support, that can be associated with complex grief, and also other death-related factors, for example, if there have been multiple losses or a violent death. In a way, the value of understanding those risk factors is not so that we as health professionals can modify them. Uh, many of them are not modifiable. It's so that we as healthcare professionals are aware that a, a relative might be at risk of having a complicated grief experience and flagging that, flagging that this person might need extra support. So, um, for example, from a specialist palliative care team to see them before and potentially after the bereavement. Jane, in the article you've written about some of the key areas of communication that you felt were important at the time your mum was in hospital... From what you've written, it seems like you wanted to be involved in her care in some way. Was that something that was offered to you? And how would you have liked to have been more involved in the care provided to her? I think I would have liked to have been involved in the care, but I would also have really loved to have been able to relax and sit with my mum. But what I found happened, instead of being with her as she died, I spent I spent the whole time trying to persuade the staff to up her pain relief because she was in such pain um, and she 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 was breathless and she kept panicking um, and I I therefore couldn't sit with her and, and, and just be with her I I found myself going out into the corridor and saying Look, I'm not sure who to talk to about this is there a palliative care specialist I, I think she needs more medication um, and the staff were lovely and said, yes, we're waiting for approval to give it to her. And I said, I can't wait for that. I can't watch my mother breathing like this. Um, why don't you just give it to her? She's dying anyway. And they said, no, we need to wait for permission. And I didn't have any personal issue with any staff, but I felt that they were restricted by rules rather than being able to act on what was needed. Um, and that felt unnecessary. And that meant that I couldn't get alongside my mum and just sit with her and relax and sort of try and calm her because she was not not in the, in, in the right sort of um, state of mind or body to be calmed. And finally, when her medication was up, she just relaxed and I could sit with her. And I don't know whether she could hear me or not, but Akina came by and said, do you know that the last the last sense to go is hearing. If you talk to your mum, she might be able to hear you. And I remember thinking how helpful that was. So I, I talked to her, and I didn't know if she was listening, but I felt calmer then because I felt I had I had an idea of what to do. Um, you know, and though my situation isn't typical um, in that I was, I really wanted it to be, I really wanted it to be a non-traumatic death after experiencing a very traumatic death of my son. Um, I, it, it mattered a lot. You know, I thought, I, I want to make this okay for her. I'm here with her. I couldn't be with my son when he died. And I think that things like that are important for the, for the medical practice, practitioners. You know, when they're with somebody who's dying, it, it's probably worth finding out a little bit. And I know there isn't time to do that, but finding out a little bit about what that person, that carer or family member's situation is. You know, if, if somebody had known that my son had just died, I... 
I guess that would have been a comfort to me because they may have understood why I was anxious and why I was trying to up her pain release, why I couldn't patiently sit there and wait and watch. You know, so I, I might have been, um, you know, more anxious than other carers might be. Thanks very much, Jane. Catherine, you've looked at the evidence of what patients' concerns are reported. How are Jane's concerns mirrored in that information? So one very common, um, commonly voiced concern is that when we give opioids, morphine-like drugs, to people who are dying, um, we are going to hasten that person's death. And people get very, very worried when their relatives receive opioids because they think that a side effect of the opioid treatment is that we'll hasten their death. Um, it's really important that healthcare professionals feel very clear in their own minds that there is no evidence that in appropriate doses and titrated to a patient's symptoms that opioids do indeed hasten death. We can reassure patients and relatives alike about this. Sometimes healthcare professionals, um, I think we're taught sometimes that we have to use this thing called the doctrine of double effect to justify opioid treatments, that although opioids might cause a harm, we're giving them in order to provide a benefit. But we simply don't need to use that doctrine to justify the use of opioids because there is no evidence that they'll hasten death. And that is a very common concern among relatives and also a common belief among some healthcare professionals. So it's really important that we just get rid of that one straight away. We can reassure everyone that in the right doses, um, they won't make people die quicker. Another common concern around pain is that a painful death is inevitable. Well, it's true that pain is common when people are dying, but it is by no means inevitable. And even when it exists, we can often get pain under control using medication. So that can be another common concern to elicit. And then I guess the third thing which is related is that people worry that when their loved one is unconscious, that they won't be able to communicate that they're in pain and therefore they will be in pain unnecessarily. And I think this is a very um, understandable concern because many people when they're dying do um, have a period of time, hours or days when they are unconscious. I think it's important to reassure relatives that even when a patient is unconscious or semi-conscious, we can get signs from their facial expression or their general posture, whether or not that they are comfortable and healthcare professionals are should be looking out for those signs. Often it's the nurses actually who, when they're turning a patient to wash them, will come up to the doctors and say, I'm just getting the impression that they are not quite comfortable and we can respond to that and give appropriate analgesia. Jane, from your experience, what are the other kind of more common concerns that you've heard voiced by relatives who've been bereaved that they had at the time of their loved one being in hospital that they didn't feel they got an answer to? Mm, well, I think my experience, of course, has been with children, the children who've died in hospital of, of, of illnesses, you know, or cancer or whatever, and their parents have suffered terribly. Some of them have, have had the most wonderful experiences and others have had terrible experiences. And, and, you know, the, the important bit is for the mother or father or family or siblings, actually. It's important for the siblings too because they carry that memory is that they can get really close to their their family member, that they're involved in what's going on, that they can lie with them, they can cuddle them, they can play with them, they can stay with them. And even when they're dead, they can still 
be with that person for a little while um, and use as little medical equipment around as possible. Um, it, it's clearly very hard for staff, that isn't it? Because obviously, you know, that's well, that's another issue. But I think that it 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 means so much to the parents or to the siblings to see what they perceive as their family member being loved and cared for in a really genuine way um, in amongst all the panic of someone trying to save a life. And that's, that's a huge challenge, isn't it, for staff? But it's so important because all the parent wants to do is to protect their child. So a parent who's watching their child die and is going to behave very irrationally, even at times, very obstructively, possibly, very hysterically, very, you know, it's love that's speaking, not aggression, and it's fear that surfaces. So reassurance, I think, plays a huge part. If the parent feels that they can trust the carer, the medical person, then of course they're going to calm down and feel that they're working as part of that team that's trying to make that child's death less painful or that adult's death less painful. Um, Though I knew that as an adult, I couldn't see it in reality because the staff were just very, very stretched. Mm. Um, I think w- one of the other things that comes out in the article is is kind of the practical considerations that often get neglected. So, you know, what are the visiting hours? And actually, can they, like you say, can they be relaxed? What, what about car parking? What about, you know, what actually happens after a person's died with, you know, death certificates, etc.? Definitely. There's so many unanswered questions, aren't there? You know, it's, you know I, I've, I've spoken to one parent who said that she was at the hospital all the time and it was so difficult knowing where to go, where to park, what to eat, how to manage her other children, how to manage herself. It, it's just the stress, the challenge, the anxiety. It's so difficult. Um, and I think that sort of information, you know, concessions need to be made, allowances need to be made for people. Um, because clearly uh, someone who's with someone who's dying doesn't feed themselves. It's the last thing you think of. I remember somebody saying to me, go, go and have a drink, go and eat, you know, you've got to eat. And I said, oh yes, of course. You know, it wouldn't have occurred to me that it was important to go and eat and take care of myself. I think self-care disappears when you're with someone who's dying because it doesn't get worse than that, does it? You know, you don't think of yourself. You, all you can do is think, how can I help this person if I leave them they might die. I want to be there. Um, and I think that's another complication, you know, trusting in the guidance of the, of the carers to say, it's, it's possibly all right that you, know, you go and eat now and you know, we'll make sure you, your, your loved one's okay. Jane, I think this feels like something I can recognise from my own experience about feeling comfortable with providing the medical care, but then being a bit more uncertain about the other sort of more holistic needs of carers. Do you have any advice about that? Yeah, so I think that you're right. We are very good at knowing the the clinical aspects of care. But actually, if a relative says, um, am I allowed to stay overnight or where, where can I sleep? Suddenly we're completely stumped because we don't have that information often at our fingertips. Um, the sorts of questions that relatives might ask are whether children are allowed on the ward, if um, they can leave their car overnight in the hospital car park, if there's anywhere to make a cup of tea. And frankly, even if they don't volunteer these questions, it might be nice to preempt them and give them information about the, the sort of support that's 
available so that they are not worried about their car getting a ticket in addition to the fact that they're the person who they care for is is dying um a good thing to do my advice would be if you don't know the answer to some of these questions the best people to ask on the ward are the nursing staff that that's some really useful practical advice I was wondering, do you have any other practical advice for junior doctors based on your years of experience in palliative care about how to get better at providing support to relatives? So I guess um, I I was a junior doctor. I I graduated in the late 90s when, I mean, I think the hospital I worked in didn't even have a palliative care team. And I I worked for a consultant who literally did not enter the rooms of dying patients. Um, So I sort of learned a lot about what was wrong before I learned how you might do it well. Um, One thing I would say is don't be afraid to start having some of these conversations and don't be afraid to say, I don't know. It's so important to sitting with a, a patient or a patient's relative for 10 minutes and finding out what they're worried about, even if you can't actually answer any of those questions, even if to all of the points you have to say, I'm going to have to ask someone, but I'll come back and let you know, that will be very, very helpful for that patient or relative. So don't worry if you don't think you're going to have all the answers because you'll you'll be able to find the answers from somewhere. Actually, just eliciting those concerns is an enormously valuable thing to do. So my first thing would be to to start having those conversations, even if you don't have the answers. And then I would also say, learn from your peers and learn from your seniors. And if you know that your consultant is about to go and break some bad news to a patient or a patient's relative, ask if you can go with them and just sit in the room and learn from how your consultant or registrar or whatever is handling that conversation. And if you're really keen or similarly really concerned, phone your local palliative care team and say, actually, I really find even walking into the room to have these conversations difficult. Can I, can I come along with one of the palliative care team and just observe how you handle this kind of conversation? I think that sort of experience really helps. You've been listening to Jane Harris and Catherine Sleeman discuss their article on how to support relatives of a dying patient. The full article, with more information, is now available on bmj.com. Thanks for listening.